0: The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com.
1: Hi, my name is Jason McDowell. I am an aviation writer by trade. Went to school to fly airplanes, took a few different uh, routes along the way, and uh, here I am now.
0: Avian Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is long awaited. I've been working on Jason McDowell for a while now. If that name might sound familiar, he is Cessna Tour on Instagram, and is honestly one of my favorite follows. He. Just has such a cool account and his uncanny ability to get so much detail and research and just dive into a subject and just share it with everyone and uncover so many cool things about the aviation world just intrigues me so much and it's worth the follow. Uh, You might hear my son when I'm recording this. uh, I have six hours of sleep, no, five hours or four hours of sleep. Uh, I just had a 15 hour and 30 minute duty day, came in from uh, Costa Rica. And if you didn't follow my Instagram, you missed a Uh, for lack of a better term, a shit show of a day for travel. So South Florida was ripe with thunderstorms and just made it a lot of fun. But anyways, that's not important for today. Jason McDowell has a great story. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. So without any further ado, here's Jason McDowell. Jason, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks a lot. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm in sunny North Carolina, you know, no real complaints uh, until next week when it's going to be like 100 degrees and I'm going to be like, why don't I live in Chicago anymore? (laughs) Man,
1: so move across the country and a a new little one. You've got all kinds of spare time, don't you? Yeah,
0: I think they have like a list of of things, like top five biggest stressors there are uh, that you could possibly go through. And I think we're hitting three of the five of them. So uh, all within a, a short six month period. So, you know, it is what it is, though. We make the best out of it.
1: Yeah, it's a good problem to have,
0: I suppose. Yeah, it is. And once winter rolls around and it's sunny here and it's like 50 degrees and I'm not in Chicago, I'll be pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perfect, man. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, The first question, it's really the only kind of timed question or pre-recorded or whatever, pre-thought out question that I have for you uh, is, why aviation? What was it about aviation that got you so intrigued to want to make a career out of it? And like you said in your intro, go to school to fly airplanes. Uh, Tell me why. Yes. Uh, geez,
1: uh, one of my earliest memories was laying in the backyard of my grandma's house, and we lived under uh, the base leg of a nearby small GA airport, and uh, my uncle at the time was a uh, CFI, and then he was kidnapped to uh, 135 flying. So uh, that, was always, that was one of my earliest memories, and from then on, I would make every excuse to go to the airport and hang out and watch airplanes. So um, it, it, it kind of started there and stuck with me and hasn't really left.
0: It's so cool to hear you're not the only one that has talked about being under the, the airport, whether it's Bravo Charlie, a small GA airport, and you just look up and you see those planes and you're just so intrigued by it that it kind of catches your eye and it really uh, takes over your mentality and you're like, I want to go do that. But now it's so unfortunate yeah, we because... We don't
1: see that happening. We hear yeah. all the com- people complaining about airplane noise. That's what I was going to say. While people complain about airplane noise, we've got all these kids and and heck, toddlers that In the meantime, are quietly becoming uh, inspired to pursue aviation.
0: Exactly, and that's all I was going to say. It's crazy now because people are trying to shut down all those airports. uh, Everyone's expanding out or moving to where the airports are and complaining about it, and that could be another big factor. For I don't think they take that into consideration about how just having an airport nearby, seeing airplanes, can really make someone go, "Wow, I want to do that."
1: Well, it's not very obvious and it's not very measurable, so maybe that means it's on all of us to, to to do our part to represent small airports because they got us to where we are.
0: Absolutely. hundred percent agree. It's uh, it's going to be a fight for everyone, not just AOPA <laughs> and all the other, yeah. all the other yeah. um, people that do that. Well, I can't think of all of them the top of my head, but they know who they are. Yeah. So how do you go from the kids sitting in your grandma's house, looking up at airplanes, wanting to fly to actually taking the actionable steps to go fly?
1: That's a good question. And uh, I mean, coming from pretty meager means uh, with a family who never, we never really had any money. Um, it is a challenge. Um, so I, I, I got through high school and, uh, my first step was taking, uh, about a year, year and a half and focusing just on earning my private pilot certificate, uh, right after high school. And so I just, I worked in bicycle shops, um, and, uh, lived at home and just spent as much, well, I saved as much as I could into the, uh, the flying account. And uh, that was pretty much why I worked, was to save money and spend it on uh, getting my private, um, which I did. Uh, and then after I had my private, uh, then I started going to step two, which was looking at the education side of it, like what colleges and universities are there out there. And um, My instructor was a Western Michigan University graduate, uh, and he was also a member of the flight team, which... Uh, people are always reflecting like, when you talk about blue angels like about Thunderbirds and definitely not that cool, but, but, but still a lot of fun. Uh, most colleges and universities in the U S that have aviation majors and aviation programs also have some form of a, of a, of a team that, uh, competes nationally, uh, in all kinds of aviation related events, whether it's in the airplane in the form of navigation or landings, Or whether it's on the ground, sort of like academic decathlon, where you compete in uh, in uh, knowledge type events. So, anyway, what's that?
0: Said flight team, right?
1: Flight team, yeah. So, uh, so he was uh, my instructor for my private. Was uh, was he he did that? He competed on the flight team, I think, for four years. And so, man, we 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 were not productive for most of my private training. (laughs) We always knew what we had to do. And then we always wound up getting sidetracked and going and having fun, dropping into the Willow Run Airport by Detroit and checking out all the old, uh, the old freight aircraft over there. Um, And uh, so we were very distracted. But uh, although the process to get my private wasn't efficient or quick, it was a lot of fun as a result. Going Uh, into college.
0: Going into college, what was your goal for your career? Was it, I want to fly 747s? Or was it, I just want to go get my ratings, see where life takes me? Or did you have a very specific path that you wanted to go down?
1: Uh, I mean, airlines were kind of in the back of my mind, but I I didn't have a specific goal. I I knew I had to get a degree to to take anything to the next level. Uh, And aviation seemed like a pretty natural fit uh, because I was already studying it for fun on the side. So um so that's kind of what I fell into. and uh, and so that that went pretty well. I uh, competed with NIFA for four years, um and uh, it was a really memorable experience. Um, we uh, most of us got on the team at a similar time, so when my my freshman year, we all were pretty much brand new um, and uh, you only can compete for four years. so um, we set a goal to win the national championship and uh, take first place at nationals and it took us four years but the very final year we were able to pull it together and make it happen so that was a uh, a huge a huge win and a really memorable experience
0: that's awesome um, I, re- I remember i was in like aviation 101 at ohio state and they were like hey flight team's gonna come talk to everyone at the end of this to try to get people to sign up Blah blah, blah. i was like oh cool flight team i like that like cool let's go do it I'm like all right Flight team, here it is. You Saturdays, you wake up at five AM, you get to the airport at five thirty, you're here for twelve hours, like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> Thanks for the free pizza. Have a good day. <laughs> that's not gonna happen. And that's
1: exactly the commitment and the drive it takes to succeed. Um, if you want if your goal is to win. Um, but uh but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's also just fine to get in the flight team, try your hardest and uh and and make fun the goal as well. So but uh, but yeah, so that that's that's, that's what I did. That's what I focused on through most of school anyway. Um, and then it was my senior year. Uh, went and I got an internship at a major U.S. airline. Um, my second day of work there was 9-11. So it was uh, an interesting time to be there. Um, that morning, my job was to sit down and figure out uh, which senior captain I would be shadowing for the following week in the jump seat. And so I was looking uh, at all their schedules and figuring out, okay, who, who, whose schedule works out best for next week to do this. And then uh, some, a group of the most senior uh, VPs and chief pilot walked past my desk very quickly, and all I heard was, we just know it wasn't one of ours. And that, that I knew that wasn't good, whatever was happening. And so we spent most of the rest of the day watching things unfold uh, on TV and uh, I remember one point looking over at my boss and thinking, I don't have to worry about this uh, jump seating thing anymore, do I? Next week. And he's like, no, you're good. So uh, from then we, we spent the next 12 or so hours uh, calling every single hotel in our entire system to try to figure out who had become stranded there and to uh, designate a most senior uh, pilot. Uh, to be the point of contact there, and um, and everyone was uh, really really great to work with. Everybody understood that it was all out of our uh, beyond our control, and um, it went as smoothly as could have been expected. But I, I certainly didn't jump seat the following week.
0: Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think for one, many people didn't fly the following week, and two, they're not letting anyone the jump seat that hasn't had thorough clearance and investigations and whatever at that point, right?
1: Well, and they moved mountains to make it happen just uh, like a week after airspace opened up. And so I think it, it was nearly an act of Congress that they went through. And I I had an actual manila folder overflowing with credentials and paperwork saying I'm allowed to steep. And so they told me, hey, just you know, wear a white button down shirt and wear some uh, black slacks and show up to this flight at this time. And we'll get... Uh, two legs at least in so you can jump seat and see what it's like and i'll never forget i showed up to that flight with my black slacks my white shirt and a folder of credentials and i ducked my head into the cockpit introduced myself the captain was expecting me he's like yeah hey, just stand out there by the galley while we get the boarding done and then I'll, I'll get you in here after we're done boarding so then here i am standing at the entryway of the jet just outside of the cockpit in an unmarked set of clothing with a folder just looking at every passenger coming in a week after the airspace opened up and it took me a second to realize why all the looks were, were odd but uh but they they all thought i was somebody and uh and so like as soon as i figured that out i started giving them like kind of mean looks and so they they all sat down and their 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 at their seats you know kind of peeking at me over their magazines and newspapers and stuff and uh and I remember the captain called me in finally, and I gave him one last kind of mean look, and went back into <laughs> the cockpit. That's
0: <laughs> awesome! You had like five minutes of extreme power; you didn't even realize it for half the time. <laughs>
1: oh, they, yeah, they, they thought I was some agent or uh, something, and uh, yeah, I was just an intern. So you should
0: have pretended yeah. like put your uh, finger up to your ear, like you're listening for something, and then like get a little worried, look around. <laughs> Speaking to your wrist, I, but, like I
1: had to. There were some pretty uh, terrified looks, although they should have felt uh, secure if there was somebody of that stature on the gym.
0: Yeah, I flew, I was 11 when that happened. So I don't really, I mean, I remember before September 11th, you could pretty much just walk up to the gate, right? Like anyone could go, you, you had to go through security, but anyone could go to the gate and pick thing and go meet for people. I remember my dad would be right by the gate. I not my dad, but my mom uh, would be right by the gate waiting for me when I got off plane sometimes. Uh, my dad was a pilot, so he could get through there. But it was just interesting after that. It was I flew to go see Cal Ripken Jr.'s, one of his last games in Baltimore. And it was just the heightened sense of security, and it just everyone was just on edge. It was it was a really interesting time to be in an airport.
1: Yeah, boy, sure things sure did change. Yeah, I remember not not. I think the year before that, my uncle flew in. Uh, he he is an airline pilot, and he flew in to Kalamazoo, uh, where I was going to school. And at the time, he was flying uh, an Embraer Brasilia Robrop. and he was able to. I just explained what i was doing and they let me through security and got me to the gate and then he came up and let me sit in the cockpit and then i left and went back to my dorm room so yeah you can't do that so easily anymore
0: no not at all and my dad used to have field trips he would take field trips when i was in elementary school and the whole class could come out to the airport and they would be able to show us the airplane and kind of hang out around the plane it was a lot of fun
1: yeah that would be
0: fun yeah not doing that anymore well maybe you can just got to go through a bunch of other hoops and and figure it out and contact a lot of people before it was just like hey call your chief pilot it's all right all right cool take 30 kids through security and bring them to an airplane oh man i know crazy times man absolutely crazy yeah
1: it was a it was a fun time to intern at the airline though because um Well, I mean, it was a fun airline too, but I I did half of my time in flight operations and then my other half was done in uh, the pilot training center and there was little to no supervision. So I got to kind of do and and look into projects just as I saw fit. Uh, I looked into things based on what I was interested in at the time. And so that was fun. And then one of the most valuable lessons I learned was that in the pilot training center, the the technicians responsible for maintaining the big level D full motion, you know, fifty million dollars simulators. Uh, I learned that their favorite beer was Heineken, and so armed with that information, I was able to show up just randomly with a case of their favorite beer, and in exchange, they would put the sims up on motion, and uh, and we'd play Kill the Intern in, in the in the seven thirty seven simulators. So. Uh it was a great time i mean you, you you see videos and you hear about you know experiments of you know can the private pilot land the airliner and uh, and those are fun to watch, but I've never seen one that asks you know can the private pilot uh survive in a jet that is actively trying to kill him but uh, but that's what we did. Uh, we put it up on motion and uh and the simtech would would attempt to to make me die, and I would have to try to not die and uh and I mean, here I was, a private instrument pilot without a multi-engine rating and not even my commercial and
0: um it was a good time all you knew is that power forward you go fast power back you go slow <laughs> that's about it
1: he's probably probably the, the the most memorable little battle we had was it actually took place in chicago we he loaded us into uh, midway has fours and two twos right yes they do yeah so we were on like four right maybe and um so he's like yeah go ahead take off and he kind of had a little tone. So I knew something was going to happen. And so I, um, took off. And of course there's a engine fire at V1. And I mean, I barely could, I did, could find V1 at the time, but, um, so I blew the bottles and put the fire out and tried to get into the air on one engine. And, um, and what did he do next? I think, I think on climb out he gave me a rudder hard over like to the wrong side, given the engine failure. And then, uh, I'm trying to deal with that. So it gives me a rudder hard over to the other side and left it there. So now I'm flying all crooked through the air trying to figure out what to do. And I think he thought I was gonna turn left and just head into O'Hare, which would have I mean, in real life, that's what I think what I would do because we've got the super long runways and, and ARF and everything. So uh but he I was looking around, I, I level off at like, I don't know, two thousand feet or something, and uh um dealing with the, the failures I've been given to that point. And, uh, and I happened to look and stretch and look to the right and lean forward a little bit. And I saw loaded into the sim was Meek's field. And uh, I was like, well, heck, that would be, that would be interesting. So, uh, so I kind of, I kind of leveled off and slowed down and eventually turned East and he's, he's failing a bunch of small stuff on me to keep me busy. And he doesn't really understand what I'm doing because he he thinks I would have gone into O'Hare and um, so I turned south and uh, get on a long final for uh, Meek's Field, which, what, what was it, like 4,000 feet or 5,000 yeah, feet? Maybe I think 4,000. Um, uh, and then once he sees what's happening, then he's like, then he understands, like, oh, he's going to try to land at Meek's Field. I, I can't make this happen. And so I think he gave me a, a runaway trim nose up, and then I was trying to handle that, and then he had switched it so it was a runaway trim nose down. And I, all I could do was hold the trim switches full aft and hold them there to freeze it. And so now I'm flying crooked through the air, one engine with having to hold the trim up and I can, I'm barely able to muscle this thing on the final. Um, what else does he do? He did a couple of other things too that aren't coming to mind. So I, I muscle the thing onto the runway at Meeks Field. And then as soon as I touch down, I hear the, these two little poofs kind of faint. I was like, what in the hell was that sound? And I'm looking for enunciators and stuff and nothing's coming up. Yeah, he blew two of two, the main tires on one side, which happened to be the side on Lake Michigan. So, um, so I'm trying to come to a stop using one reverse the one reverser that works. And then, uh, and, uh, go off into the grass. And I think when I came to a stop, like I was over Lake Michigan, but the nose wheel was still on land. And so it was like a huge victory. And I remember looking back and saying something like, "I yeah, suck on that. Yeah. I, I won that day. So yeah,
0: yeah. you can't get me. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's funny. That sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, you're the second person I just talked to, just interviewed, that had some interaction with you. There was a SimTech or talking about SimTech. So if you really want to get some hours, you know, just hang around. Find out someone's favorite beer and you might be able to get some flying in. You never know.
1: I, I think that gets you far in life no matter what,
0: what uh, segment yeah. or, or, or job segment you're in. You know, Coffee in the morning, beer in the afternoon, whichever one. Preferably beer after they're flying, not before they go fly, though.
1: <laughs> but But yeah, between coffee and beer, these are currencies that I think have more power than than many actual currencies,
0: especially with the pilot's coffee, right? Oh, especially for pilot's coffee. Good little brand right there. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay you later. Uh, that's funny. Um, so keep, keeping going with uh, your story, what was the next step? So you had this internship during arguably outside of what just happened the worst year, uh, or a couple years or decade almost of aviation. What was next for you? Did this kind of the outlook on becoming an airline pilot didn't look as great did you turn away from aviation? Were you scared off of it or did you still go down that path?
1: It, it was chilling how bad the industry was then. I mean, everyone was laying off. Um, there, there were zero job prospects at, at any level. Um, friends of mine who kept going uh, went straight into six figures of debt, um, which was maybe even more impressive then than it is now. Um, and, and they just kind of, I think they had reached the, they were, they had gone beyond the point of no return. They, they were path B1 on their careers. Like they, they had so much invested in it. That was the option. Um, now I was in a position where I had self-funded all of my private training and yeah, I just got through four years of college and I had my you know, degree to pay for. Um, but I had uh, gotten to the tail end of my commercial training. I was ready to schedule a commercial ride. And I was waiting on loan paperwork to come back for the end of the commercial and the entire multi-engine course. And I I want to say it was like twenty-five or thirty grand this last flight loan. And uh, I I literally just had to sign on the dotted line. Um, That's all that was left, and I could have done it. But my uncle, who actually he was the guy I mentioned earlier, who was the CFI and one thirty-five pilot, he was the co-signer, and. i was thinking ahead and it's like man it's one thing to risk your own money your own credit line but to take someone else down with you that's not acceptable and so i i, I couldn't do it i couldn't in, in good faith um, put his money and his credit line on the line just to maybe someday get a job flying so um so i, I took a different route altogether for many years um and uh, and the goal at that point became well okay I love to fly, but I, I'm learning that that GA is really the, what I love the most. So maybe the new goal is to get a job that's rewarding and, and fun, but that allows me to uh, indulge in GA and, and fly for fun on the side, maybe someday in my own airplane. So that was the the new goal after that.
0: Was that tough for you after you made that decision, uh, which is a very commendable decision because a lot of people would just be like, ah, oh, whatever. He's willing to do that. And I'll call him, ask him if he says, okay, I'm gonna go do it. But uh, to really understand the risk that comes out, especially during that time when, I mean, my dad took a 60% pay cut right after 9-11. It was like a week later. And people forget, getting, being hired by a regional was almost impossible for like eight years. Like you had to be very competitive. People that are, it was hard to be a flight instructor. <laughs> like yeah. And to, what I'm saying, be a flight instructor, you're making like 10 grand, 12 grand. Like you weren't making any money. Whatsoever, and
1: even in the regionals, I remember the headlines. I yeah. think it would Masaba, where like there was a there was a big expose from some local news source that that they found out that the new hire Masaba first officers actually qualified for food stamps, and then so that news hit the press and it became public. So what does Masaba do? They raise and I don't even, I think it was Masaba, I don't know. But what do they do? They they raised that salary just enough so the pilots couldn't get food stamps. It's like That's the environment. It yeah. was it was.
0: And I remember talking yeah. earlier podcasts I did with uh Drizzle and Kurt. Uh, they don't run on Instagram anymore, but they would talk about how they would like sleep on benches, they would go shave in the bathroom. Like they would like they that's all they had to do, you know. It's like it was absolute madness how this industry has shifted. Uh, into what it is now where you're getting a 50 grand bonus and what Piedmont and Envoy just announced 50% pay increases. Like, it's just, it's insane. And it's finally a pilot's market. Um, and as we know, things can change like a, on a, in a couple of days with pandemics, with whatever might pop up, but enjoy the good times while you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it was difficult for me um, personally. It was, I think one of the more difficult items was kind of going back and hanging out with all my friends who kept going because, uh, I don't know, it was hard to go back and not feel like a failure. Like, because, you know, you see them, you know, finally getting these, these sweet jobs flying, you know, uh, for the airlines and, and, uh, and here I was on, on, on plan B and, uh, that was kind of, it was tough to swallow at first, but, uh, but you know, good friends, that doesn't matter. So that didn't last too long
0: did it kind of help out a little bit that i mean they weren't getting paid very much and maybe they're a little bit down on the outlook of their career as well and you kind of were maybe moving and making your own headway in another career or did that no it was never
1: competitive it was just it was all in my head it was it was uh, an issue that i had to deal with feeling like i was the the, the the failure compared you know in the group but but no it was never competitive and and all of my friends, they're they're good people, and so it never actually existed. It was just something I had to deal with, and, and it didn't take that long. I got through it, and 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 then I, I realized that that's not really how my group of friends measured ourselves, and so it didn't
0: matter. How did you go through? Because it sounds like your whole life, I mean, aviation was kind of like your identity and what you wanted to do. How did you, what did you go through to find something else that was maybe got you that much enjoyment or was it just get a job that has some sort of a career and that you can make some good money and, and then fly on the side?
1: Yeah. So, uh, my career path up until recently has had nothing to do with aviation. And so I got my fix by staying involved with NIFA, the National Intercollegiate Flying Association. And and so instead of competing, because you can only compete for four years in college, um, I, I stayed involved and still stay involved as a judge. So, every fall, there are regional competitions all across the US, multiple ones. And then the, the teams who finish the best at regionals then qualify for nationals. And uh, uh, so, there are all these competitions in the fall, and there's one big one in the spring. And uh, no matter where you are in the country, there's going to be a NIFA event happening at least in the fall. Um, so it makes it easy if you if you're able uh, to to take a few days and go and volunteer. and that means you're outstanding at the edge of the runway, calling out landing distances uh, and you're uh, helping uh, with the navigation event and then you're helping with some of the indoor Uh, knowledge-based events like there's a pre-flight inspection event and so on so that that was kind of how i got my aviation fix
0: so you uh, were probably you were probably a judge when i was in college and that's how you probably met the mad scientist anthony pence i'm guessing
1: it is it is how I met the mad scientist. Yes.
0: Does he not? Does he not give off mad scientist vibes? I mean, is that just a me thing? But <laughs> I love Pence. He's a great it's, guy. It's
1: it's, it's it's the unique combination of enthusiasm and brilliance. Yeah. Oh my uh, gosh!
0: Absolutely. He, kid's a freaking genius. He's going to be a billionaire one day. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. He he owns a 170 uh, now, and uh, and also a Mooney rocket, and uh, it's it's great to follow him. I think. Uh, I don't know if his Instagram is public. I think it's the Flying Ohio Fox. It is. And, uh, I think it is public. Yeah, and I think you can follow uh, his, his journey uh, as he zips from one part of the U.S. to the other in his uh, in his Mooney, and then he plays in his 170 on the side. Yeah. So he, he's a good one to follow.
0: And Foxtrot Aviation started it. I remember I was in aviation classes with him, and he was in the back with everyone with their orange shirts, going to go detail planes. I was like, oh, that's <laughs> cool. like Good for him. But he turned it into like a major company. He's doing so much cool stuff with that yeah yeah great guy it's insane It's so cool uh it's just you never know who who you're around or in like in your early years college high school whatever it is you, it's really interesting to see what they go on to do and, and the impact that they can have on an industry or even just people around you so you never know always be nice to people <laughs> you never know who yeah, you might need to help you out. Sure. yeah but yeah i met up with pence at ohio state and uh for industry night and it was cool to, to catch back up with him and, and talk about his crazy goals and what he wants to do so we'll see it was funny competing,
1: uh, for Western Michigan university. Uh, we were in the same region as Ohio state and, uh, and, and uh, brace yourself if you're not already sitting down, I was actually born in Ann Arbor. So oh my genetically how I'm do I hang up? Hang up. <laughs> I know. I know. Genetically I'm predisposed to, to, to hate, uh, Columbus and everything it stands for. But strangely the team that we got along best with was the Buckeyes. And so here we are, a team from Michigan, having a great time hanging out and uh, and making great friends from uh, from Ohio State. So it was uh, an example of of how aviation can bring together even sworn enemies.
0: Who's like and the most, ahead. is there like a historic flight team school? Like is one naturally better? Is it like Embry-Riddle is historically better or is it just change in the, every couple of years?
1: Uh, if you look strictly at competition results, you you see a lot of the same players almost every year, and those players tend to be uh, University of North Dakota. Um, Embry Riddle is is definitely one. Uh, Southern Illinois University is way up there, uh, you know. And, and the thing is, though, it, it it's, it's it is an indication of of the dedication and the hard work of all the students, but it's also a function of the amount of uh, of, of support that the team has financially. Uh, from their respective universities, and so I have a lot of respect for these smaller schools that maybe they're all paying out of pocket for every single hour they fly and and maybe they all had to save money from a second part time job uh, to even get to the competition across the country. and it's these these really small small schools you, you many times haven't heard of, um, and they maybe don't place very high and and maybe they don't place anybody in the top ten in any event. But man, they are working just as hard and they are, are just as dedicated as the teams that on paper are the most successful. So um, so there is a, a depth there, I think, of, of the competitors, uh, although they're not the most uh, successful on, on paper. Man, they, they're, they're admirable to, to watch.
0: Yeah, if, if you're interested in Flight Team, check it out. It's a, uh, I, I don't know if it's only 141 schools or what's, can 61 schools uh, be in Flight Team, you have to be a university.
1: I don't know that it's a requirement. I think they are all 141, um, but uh, but yeah. So that's at least the most pop, the most common. But yeah, it is a great way to to, to um, really test your skills and to it's really rewarding. And, and boy, do you build connections. I mean, uh, I remember I think it was my junior year, maybe it was my senior. I just got a phone call from a friend of mine's dad. I know I knew for years, uh, saying, "Hey, I need somebody to fly a right seat in a citation. Uh, can you help out?" And I was like, well, after I get my multi and my commercial, I yeah, absolutely, but no, I can't. Cause I'm not there yet. And so I called my good buddy who I knew was actually qualified. And this was in that really difficult time where nobody was hiring. And I was like, Hey Marty, uh, you need a job flying jets. <laughs> he's like, I think after he picked the phone up, he's like, yes, please give me the information now. And, uh, he went and did that, but it was all through connections with flight team. And even today when you're walking through an airport terminal and, uh, strike up conversation with somebody it, it might come up and you when you realize whoa you competed too what years did you compete and it's sort of like the, the illuminati so like you learn that you're both involved in something that was uh, really
0: really that rewarding and memorable so the connections yeah absolutely i remember all my friends at flight team like yeah i got a friend at southwest you said once i get all my time they're gonna hire me or Delta's gonna hire me And i was like oh, dang i wish i had those connections uh but I mean, yeah, it's just really interesting. It's a great community. Uh, it's an interesting community for sure. There's some some power and personalities there as well <laughs> from the stories that I've heard. But uh, it's a great way to to make friends, lifelong friends, because you go through the struggle together, you know, for one common goal. So you build that community and you build the friendship up and get some mentors. So what what, what more could you want?
1: I mean, my good buddy, Marty, who I just mentioned, uh, Western
0: Michigan ended up marrying
1: a competitor from Ohio State. So There you go. You got smart. That's a a, (laughs) a house
0: divided, let me tell you. That's really funny. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Have you ever wondered when other pilots start thinking about their financial plan for life after flying and how they approach it? I know I have, and maybe I was a little late. (laughs) Our partner, RAA, gets that those of us flying the line tend to approach things a bit differently than most including how we manage our retirement savings. That's why they personally asked me to invite you to participate in a short survey online at raa.com slash pilotthepilot. By answering a few questions, you'll be sharing valuable opinions and insights that can benefit fellow pilots while getting real-time results showing how your own money management preferences compare to your peers and colleagues. I personally took the survey and listen, it's a great way to get the wheels turning about your long-term financial outlook beyond your final flight while helping others do the same. So do me a favor and take a minute to toss in your two cents at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to the episode. i keep on going in your career. Did you fly much I, I, between, I guess how, yeah. Did you fly at all when you were uh, building your other career up or was it just Nifa? Uh,
1: I didn't fly much. And the reason was I, I took the perspective, uh, I took the position that unless I could afford to fly once or twice a week and maintain proficiency really well, then I had no business being in the air. Um, and so for that reason, I didn't fly much at all for a number of years. Uh, and then when I finally was making enough money to afford to be able to fly regularly, I, I went and began a checkout process a of- few times over the years and then every single time i'd get the bill at the end of the flight and look at what i was paying just to rent an airplane for a couple of hours and i thought man it it just seems like i'm throwing money away here I, i think instead of doing this i should be saving for an airplane of my own and uh that would be so much more rewarding than just just you know spending this much on a rental every week so, so then it, 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 stage two of that was, okay, now I can't afford to fly, but I'm going to just save money for as much as, as long as I can until I can buy something of my own. Um, and, uh, at about the same time, a little bit before that, that's when I really started, uh, having fun with Instagram. Um, and, uh, that was a side interest. It all started with, uh, my, my enjoyment of writing and, and of research and investigation Um, and I, I really wanted to get better at writing at the time too. So, uh, just as someone wanting to succeed in triathlons would go and, and, and do something physical every single day to get better at it. Um, I, I gave myself a challenge of, well, I wonder if I can research and write, uh, an entire detailed Instagram post every single day. And I wonder how long I could do that. Maybe I could go for a year. And, um, and I did it for, I think, I, about a year and a half or so. I, every single day I did a full post. And um, and it was hard, but I did it so that I could kind of build my research and my writing skill on the side. And um, it's one thing, I think, to post just to throw a, po- a photo up and be done, and there's your post. But, uh, but man, this was every post was right up to the 2200 character limit, which is about two-thirds to three-quarters of a page. And it was all pretty well-researched and it was edited photos and, and hard to find photos. And so that was almost like a little side part-time job in a way. Um, but uh, but that, that sort of helped me along the, the, the way to get uh, my first airplane because uh, at, toward the end I, I built a pretty good number, uh, follower base and I, I threw out there. I said, hey, there are way, way better places to donate money, but if you want to help me along my path to get an airplane – um, here's something you, a way you can donate a few bucks and say, thanks for, you know, all this, this writing I've done over the past couple of years. And, uh, it ended up generating, uh, it, it wasn't 10,000. I think it was like between five and $7,000 in the end, which was a nice little boost. Um, and, uh, and then that, that, that kind of was the kickoff to, to being able to buy my own airplane.
0: I had no idea you did every single day for a year and a half. That's. I mean, the amount of, if anyone's seen your post, uh, they know the amount of detail that you put in everything. And it's clear that you have researched this as much as you can possibly go. Like I imagine that would take multiple hours for every single post.
1: It was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, at the time I had a job that had at least two hours of downtime every day. So I kind of cheated and used a little bit of that time, but that works. yeah, it was a big, a big commitment of, of time and effort to make it happen. And certainly I'm not putting, not able to put that much time and effort into it now, but, uh, but yeah, it was a lot of work
0: when, how long did it take you? Everyone wants to have, even if they don't say it, everyone would love to have a lot of followers on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever it is. How long of actually going every single day to take before you started getting, I don't know, uh, five, 10, 20, uh, up to where you are now, was it, was it very quick or did it take a lot of time?
1: Um, I have, I, I kept a chart going for some time, um, really out of curiosity. And I, I mean, I want to say it was like, a. I I mean, to get to a hundred thousand, I want to say it was, uh, maybe three years of very regular work. Um, three to four, I guess. And, uh, uh, and then after that, I, I think it really leveled off, uh, after a hundred thousand. And, uh, uh, my, my sense is that the algorithm is one that really rewards paid advertising and pays paid boosts. And, um, and I'm not a huge fan of the way Instagram is run. So I, I have kind of promised myself, I will never pay Instagram to run an ad or to boost a post out of spite. And so I haven't. And I think, I think the the algorithm now is such that it really drives and rewards paid boosts and 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 advertising. Uh, and as a result, I think if you do none of it that, that I think it, it, you, you see uh, your your reach is throttled somewhat and and so it really leveled off after about a hundred thousand. But the nice thing is the the followers I do have i, I through the comments I read, it's really clear that that people uh, I am engaging with are are people who are engaging with the platform in in a, in a different way than most, they, they get more out of the posts and they actually spend time to read the whole caption. And they, they, they actually absorb the, the content as opposed to just, uh, scrolling through it.
0: Yeah. Which is awesome because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people just have bots and they look at their engagement rate and it's like 1%, 2% less. I mean, uh, I actually, I was off for been off for like 30 something plus days and I didn't post very much. And I kept getting more followers. And it's like, why am I getting followers? I'm not posting anything. And I'm pretty sure it was all bots. So now when I go post something, uh, it's just like, what are these? Like, yeah, I go and delete them because I, I would rather have uh, a smaller overall follower base that are more engaged than have a ton of followers with no engagement, if that makes sense. Like, I'd rather build a small, good community than a big, bad community. If I don't want to say bad, but you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the quality of followers you have and the quality of the engagement, which is more difficult to measure. Um, but I think one indication is the the, um, the thoughtfulness of the comments you get uh, that, that shows that people really are uh, absorbing everything you're, you're creating and yeah. getting a lot out of it.
0: Yeah. I think comments and DMs, if uh, the type of DMs you get as well, if they're like really super engaging and about your content and about the community, then they're great. But if it's a bunch of just random people saying, Hey, what's up? We, like all that kind of stuff, it's like no, not. I have I a story.
1: really bad habit with with comments. There are geez, right now. I think I have, I probably have twenty or thirty messages just waiting. And what happens is, it's so bad. I, I see a comment that's really well thought out, and it's like I see it. And it's like okay, I don't have time to put together a reply that's worthy of this wonderful message I just got. So I'm going to put it aside and I'll get to it. And then you say that over and over again. Finally, I look and it's like been sixty days, and it's like God, I feel so bad because this person put this great message together and because it means a lot to me I'm not addressing it right away and then it looks like you're ignoring them and so if you have if you're listening and if you have sent me a really nice message and I have not replied that's what's happening I'm not actually purposely ignoring you to ignore you
0: But I'm still ignoring you. (laughs) I do the same thing. So it's okay. I am very bad at that as well. Everyone probably knows that that's listening to this, but I, I read most of them and I do appreciate every comment and every email, every message that I get. It's just time's limited sometimes. And uh, when I'm not doing the podcast or flying, I try to focus on uh, the kid and the family as much as I can.
1: I'll tell you the variety of of, of messages I get are, it's amazing. I have A number of people on the inside at various um, companies like aircraft manufacturers and other companies in the industry that um, like I purposely have not learned their name. And and they send me really interesting uh, tips and occasionally photos um, of things that really I shouldn't be seeing. And so I have on my phone, I have a folder of I think it's just called Secret. And it's like photos that people send me that aren't okay to share. And so I just occasionally go and scroll through them and see. Uh, so it's it, it, the, the connections that are made are really fun and I, 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 I'll i take information provided to me in that way and then use it to help supplement a post about you know, a different uh, a topic that's related. Um, but even, it, there are wild ones. I, I was departing, I was, I was airlining I think out of Zurich to come back to the US. I just went on a, a trip over there for fun um, one year as a vacation and uh, I think I just, I just posted in passing that, Hey, I'm leaving Zurich heading back to the U S and like, that was the post. And then I get a message from a guy who worked in bureau control. He's like, dude, what flight are you working? I'll make sure to get you some better routing. So you get home quicker. And so I told him, and unfortunately I think he was working, he ended up having to work in a different sector. So it didn't work out, but I thought that was a really cool message. That's really
0: funny. I love that. <laughs> That's so cool. You never know, man. You never know. That's Awesome. Uh, how has you mentioned that you did this to pretty much just improve your writing? Have you noticed you write your, the way you you compose these comments, the way you compose the captions? Has this changed, or have you come up with a system where every post is kind of crafted off, uh, a, a, you know, who, what, when, or why, all that kind of thing, and, and every post is kind of the same? You just uh, change the information up a little bit, or has it completely changed from when you started? Um, I don't. It, it probably has changed since when I started. It's it's not. I don't use any kind of a
1: format. I just, uh, I just think out loud basically and tell the story that needs to be told. Um, and it's not as, uh, regimented as, as, as other types of writing. Uh, you know, I think like when you're landing a, an airplane, a small plane anyway, like okay, well, let's use a tail, a tail dragger as an example. You know, you're not really analyzing specific details individually in a certain order. You're looking out at the horizon and you're using, all the cues you're using your peripheral vision to get a sense of how the next few, uh, um, action items should go. And, and so I think in writing it's similar for me, I just, I just let it flow and I think out loud and, and I read it over and over again to make sure it, it does flow well and that it's, uh, logical and that it gets the ideas across. Um, so, uh, so I don't think that in depth about the individual steps at all. Um, And uh, yeah, I guess it it seems to work. So, so more recently, just in the past, well, I guess it would have been maybe coming up on two or three months ago. um, I made a huge career change, and I quit doing what I was doing for almost ten years. Um, And uh, and and, uh, my my side gig turned into my full time gig. So now I'm writing for a company um, that provides short and long form content to uh, various. Number of companies in the aviation industry, so um, that's been a big adjustment, and uh, it's been uh, exhausting, but uh, but it's been a lot of fun.
0: How has the the change been? Are you uh, are you loving life now that you can pretty much fully do your side hustle as a full time gig, or is, is it weird that it's now like your main job? Both.
1: It's it's fun and it's exhausting, and it, it, it's it is weird because I work from home now. It's one hundred percent remote, so I can live wherever I want. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly aspects of it don't feel like work at all because I'm getting paid to write about aviation stuff uh, for my main job. Uh, and, then, uh, and then other parts, you know, I'm, I'm asked to become a subject matter expert in something that maybe I'm not. So then I have to learn that topic and, um, and then, then write an actual decent technical paper or white paper about that topic. So that's, that's stressful, but it's, it's stress I put on myself. Um but in in balance though it's it, it's pretty amazing it's it's fun to be able to do what you love to do and uh, and, and do it from uh, wherever you want.
0: What's been your f- most enjoyable or your favorite post you've ever had? If you have one or maybe you have like a top two, what's your favorite? Uh, if I were to scroll through, I would find a bunch I'm not thinking
1: about, but <laughs> no, there is one that comes to mind is the stupid annual uh, bear post I do like may mid May. um what is it called the Bear Engine Assistance Rescue. So it's a it's a post showing three photos of bears all with their paws on the propellers. And I think I it just normally, my normal process, uh, certainly when I was posting every day, was to always be on the lookout for photos that had potential for a post. And so as I'm scrolling through and, and visiting random sites, uh, I would... Um, I would just, I have a couple of, a few various folders for future posts material and uh, and I would just dump them in as I saved them or as I found them. And eventually I found that I had three photos uh, all showing a bear with both paws on a propeller. And so I thought, well, they're all very similar. There must be some common theme here. And so I made up this stupid story about how you know there's this new program from, I think, the Alaska DNR um, that started where they, they, they train bears out in the wilderness yeah. so that when pilots are stranded with a starter that's not working, they can, the bear will come out and then hand prop the, 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 the airplane and rescue them. So I, I posted, it was, just, it was a, such a stupid post, but it, it made me laugh, so I posted it, and, and then, I don't know why, I, I, I set a reminder in my phone like for this anniversary of the program and uh, and so every May, whatever fourteenth or whatever it is, um, I get a little notification on my phone saying, "Hey, the, the anniversary of the Bear Engine Assistance Rescue is uh, is, is tomorrow." And it's like, oh, okay. Well, I got to update the post and do the anniversary post again." So, so that that's that's one of the more memorable ones. But there have been some uh, there have been some that were kind of achievements in terms of unveiling something new or that I shouldn't that we shouldn't know about. Um, and then some that took a whole lot of work um, to uncover. One of them was uh, there's a really really cool airplane called the Dornier Do 29, and it's a it's a high wing uh, stall airplane with a helicopter bubble nose, and it's got two engines on the wing that are pushers, one on each wing, and the engines have vectored thrust, so they're piston motors, but they are geared, and they each feed a prop shaft that can be angled downward, I think, up to close to 90 degrees um, to get insanely good short field takeoff and landing performance. Well, they built two of them, and they used them for testing, I think, in the 70s, and then they retired them both. Well, one, I think, was destroyed in a crash, I, I think, but the other is in a museum in Germany. And, uh, there's, I I learned that there was no real footage of this airplane and certainly none showing the props vectoring downward. And so, um, I sort of employed some investigation skills and, and I got in touch with, uh, one of the main curators at the Dornier museum and I got her to go and dig through the archives and, find actual footage, like video footage of this airplane vectoring its props up and down. Um, then I, she was very clear that I had permission to post this on Instagram and nowhere else and, and in no other capacity. And, and that was it. And so it was, um, that one was really valuable and, and not valuable, but it was uh, really rewarding, uh, to be able to, uh, to uncover, to, Find and uncover and share something that otherwise would have remained hidden and maybe just deteriorating until it was destroyed forever. So, uh, and then similarly, back in December, I, uh, I, I was invited by Textron Aviation to go visit the, um, the headquarters there. And uh, one of the one of my long long items I've wanted for a long time was to be able to go and, and dig around. The Cessna and Beechcraft archives myself and see what I could uncover. And we were actually able to do it. And it was amazing. And the Textron was, you know, you think of Textron Aviation, it's a huge company. They, they build all the Cessnas and Beechcrafts and Bell helicopters. And, you know, that's sort of like, it's easy to think of them as a big faceless corporation, but man, I'll tell you the, the current leadership at Textron is like, they're one of us. Like they get it. They get the passion of aviation and they get the value of, aviation history that maybe didn't always exist in that company. Um, so they were amazing to work with and they were, um, really open and welcoming and they, they let me see and, um, share just about everything
0: I wanted to. So, uh, it was, it was great. Did you uncover anything crazy cool? There, um, like, Oh wait, 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 you weren't supposed to see that. You weren't supposed to see that. Oh, well, there were areas
1: that were off limits, but they were all. None of them were historic. It was like going through the the airframe test facilities where they would, you know, like, you know, that Boeing video where they flex the 787's wing up and it breaks. Like those sorts of rigs, they had test testing like things like the uh, the upcoming Denali and the Sky Courier. Like the, the, that, those testing facilities were were off limits to photos. Um, but uh, for me, the, the the real win was being able to gather and share any historical information i wanted to so that was that was huge Uh, the next step is i'd love to return and seek out actual airframes hidden elsewhere like i think the the ngp the next generation piston it still exists there in a hangar this was an airplane that they unveiled at oshkosh in 2007 i want to say it's a really sleek high-wing cessna like if um Yeah, it looks like a carbon fiber, sleek um, cardinal, kind of. Uh, And they never stopped. And that year at Oshkosh, they simply flew over, I think maybe twice, and um, allowed photos to be taken of it in flight. And then they returned, and they ultimately ended up instead going a different direction with their product line. But that airplane was never destroyed. It was never scrapped. It's in a hangar right now somewhere over there and so the next step with textron is i need to beg them and get me to get them to let me show up and then dig through all those other hangars elsewhere on their properties and and find out what airplanes are 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 lurking in those hangars forgotten and then pull them out and do photo shoots and and talk about them
0: i just googled the airplane it's it's got like a ttx nose to it it has a light sport feel to it a cardinal feel to it like it's got a lot going on in this plane <laughs>
1: i think doesn't it have a separate back door i like can't it tell from the doors.
0: picture i'm looking at right now
1: i want to say one of the mock-ups showed that each pilot had their own door in the front seat as usual but i think at least one or maybe both of the backseat passengers had their own doors which I
0: kind of stood out it was yeah they bad. did have doors you're right they, there's two doors on the left for sure i haven't seen the right side oh. yet. So it's a Cessna sedan, I suppose. Looks like, uh, it's kind of like, you know how the 206 has, uh, two doors on one side. It has two doors on the, this one has two doors on the left side.
1: Oh, okay. So Interesting. It's try-
0: <laughs> hey man, they should bring it back. You know, I'm all for this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Let me, let me fly it around for him. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. So since you answered what your favorite posts were or a couple of them, do you have a least favorite one? Like one that was just very hard for you to write. Uh, you just put, kept putting off, off, and off, and eventually, like, all right, I don't have anything to post. I'm going to post this.
1: No, I mean, if I don't like it, I don't post it. And if I don't like it after I post it, I delete it. Um, but what the, the, the closest answer I can give you is, okay, and I can't think of a specific example, but there are plenty of posts where I put a ton of, of investigation and a ton of uh, effort um, researching and writing it, and then it just was kind of a flop performance wise. Like it didn't get very many likes. And uh, so that was always a give and take. I mean, over the past years, it's like, well, I can, I can throw something up. That's a beautiful photo or, you know, some sweet shot of a jet a fighter jet, you know, making clouds over its wings or something. And, and that'll get tons of hits cause it's pretty, and it's cool to look at. Uh, but then I can, on the flip side, I can put um, a ton of info, a ton of effort into unveiling something that has literally never been seen by the public before. But because it's a uh, something because the visuals are more technical than beautiful, it doesn't gain the number of uh, likes and it doesn't gain the reach that the pretty post might have. Um, so th- those are, I think overall are the ones that that kind of let me down the most is when all the work goes into it, and it's not as appreciated as the simple ones that are just cool photos. Um, but I, I feel better when I remind myself that the people who do see it and who, are liking it are really engaged and, and it really it, it's it, it resonates with them really well
0: yeah isn't that crazy sometimes you might like i mean you more so than me i write and delete captions a million times and eventually i'll just write like two words because i like i'm too embarrassed by how <laughs> terrible writer i am <laughs> so uh when you when you put so much time and effort into something whether it's like a picture editing it or just doing it and then no one likes it it's like all right cool that sucks all right <laughs> ego hit. <laughs> Here's an example.
1: So, uh, I, long ago, geez, maybe back in college, I read about how the, uh, MD 90 airliner has something called pylon flaps. And so we all know about elevators. We know about ailerons, we know about flaps, but pylon flaps are sort of those? so I looked into it. And, um, so the MD 80 was in production for many years and, uh, it had the old JT um, turbofans small turbofans for for all that time then when they introduced the md90 they put really big and much heavier large diameter turbofans on the back of this jet for more power and more fuel efficiency but the engines were really heavy so it threw the balance of the jet off and so what they found was that when they were doing flight testing they put the md90 um, into a stall and it, did, it lacked the sufficient nose-down authority that it needed to recover from the stall. So their solution was to introduce an entirely new set of flight controls on the pylons that hold the engines. And so if you picture the back of the jet from the back, that you got the fuselage, you got the two engines, and then the pylons are the airfoil-shaped flat pieces that connect the engine to the fuselage. Um, and on the back of each one of those, they put flaps on. And when the jet is, let's see, I think the logic in the system says that when the the yoke is at or near full forward travel, then the pylon flaps go down like flaps, but they act like elevators, forcing those down. So that stuck with me. And I, I always wanted to find a photo of that, but they're really hard to see because they're sort of tucked in between the fuselage and this big engine. So they're kind of hidden to begin with. And then, how often are you standing directly behind a jet? You know that's running. Yeah, not too often. So, uh, so as as far as I could tell, prior to maybe five years ago or so, um, there were literally no, like, there were zero photos of deployed pylon flaps anywhere on the web at all. And then, boy, did I did I wrangle Google to try to find some shots of it. Um, so finally I had the opportunity, uh, through a, a job connection, I, uh, was able to be out on the ramp, uh, at, uh, uh, an airline a, an airport with airline service. And I, uh, at the time I saw there was an MD 90 parked at the ramp. And so I, I saw the, one of the pilots was out doing the walk around. And so I went up to him and I was like, Hey, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I said, is there any way you can, like one of you guys can power up the jet? And then put power on the flight controls and show me the the pylon flaps and how they deploy. And he's like, "Oh hell yeah, let's do it." And so he he like went up and he told the first officer, "He's like, hey man, you know, do just that. You know, put it on power and then uh, cycle the pylon flaps like you know four or five times for us." And then so we went and stood behind the jet and you know only the APU was running, the engines weren't. And so um, I was able to actually get up close video of the pylon flaps deploying. And uh, and so it, it's like the most obscure technical dumb thing you know in the scheme of things but in in terms of uh trying to capture and record aviation history that was a big win for me because it didn't exist anywhere and now i think there are no md90s flying anywhere i think i think every one of them has been retired so it's something that will never be seen again and i was really i felt really it was very rewarding to actually capture something of that technical in nature so that other people could see it as well
0: yeah, it's really cool. It's really interesting the, the things that you've been able to do. and what i' what I imagine when you started this, you had no idea how this would eventually become a job. This would eventually uh, become more than just a, a challenge to make yourself a better writer. It turned into a career, and you've been able to under some really cool stuff like you've just been talking about and possibly have the only photo on Google of this. So it's pretty cool. yeah.
1: yeah, and then i've I've still got a list of things i'm I'm pursuing and uh, trying to document for the same reasons because almost nothing. there are certain things that uh, there's been virtually no coverage or photos of throughout history, but, um, yeah, there's a, there's an airplane I want to photograph that currently is hangered maybe an hour away from me right now in Wisconsin. And, um, I, I just, I showed up to the guy's door at his house based on the address under the airplane's registration, just out of the blue. I was like, I got to go find this guy cause I need to see and photograph this airplane. And, um, so I, I, I head out into the, Rural areas of our county, and and find his address, and and that the the interest to us driveway. It's a long driveway, and in, in in a very remote part of the county, and uh, there were probably at least three no trespassing signs, like "do not enter private property." And and I was like, "Well, we'll see." So I just uh, I, I drove up, and and it was kind of a weird entry to the or a weird uh, approach to the house because the driveway kind of took you around to the back of the house so now i'm now i'm on his private property and i'm way up in the, this long driveway away from anywhere i should be driving and i'm parking my car and driving and walking up to his house to the back door which is just nothing about it is appropriate um and so i uh, knock on the door and i immediately open up with hey you know i'm a i'm a private pilot you know just town on the other side of town here and uh and I'm researching this airplane that that is registered to you. Can I ask you some questions about it? And, um, he, he was like, it was definitely the initial reaction was like, okay, I, maybe I should call the police because this guy is saying, um, but he, he turned out to be a nice guy, a little bit reclusive. He He's private for a reason. He doesn't really have any desire to, to share any of his information, but he was still very cordial. And he, uh, he, he told me the story of the airplane and, uh, and, that, and I, he never called me back because he's kind of a reclusive guy. So uh, anyway, that's, that's on my longer-term list of things to accomplish is to just happen to be taxiing by his hangar up at this airport where I know it's hangared, and, and hopefully it hangar's open and I can uh, smoothly kind of be walking by and see if I can get some photos of it. It's funny. You're going to be there like
0: every day. <laughs> <laughs> so when you said you could work wherever you want, you could work at the airport every single day. I'm just saying. If I
1: had, if I had uh, an acceptable Wi-Fi performance there, I could. Yes.
0: Hey, man, it's a business write-off, right? Get some Verizon five G.
1: <laughs> well, well, yeah, I suppose I could go with the five G. Yeah. That's funny.
0: See, we're, we're coming up with uh, for with some uh, good <laughs> problems to your... so or we are coming up with solutions to your problems.
1: Yeah, well, right now I've got my uh, eye on a uh, rather run-down house at an air
0: park in Michigan. So, oh, cool. Um, Limited I, time. I can not count my chickens before they're hatched, but uh, man,
1: if, if that were to work out, I'd be able to have my airplane in my own hangar at my house on a beautiful grass strip. So,
0: can't beat that.
1: Uh, keeping my fingers crossed for that.
0: Talking about, I know we've been running about an hour, we'll wrap this up soon, but uh, talk a little bit about uh, your airplane. Uh, I know it's been kind of a whole process and you've been documenting it all with Flying Magazine, but give us like a a little gist of uh, what's been going on, why you chose the plane you chose and uh, that whole process.
1: Yeah, so I knew I wanted the tail dragger um, because I didn't want to ever get bored. And I remember when I was flying regularly in things like 152s and 172s, they're fun airplanes, but toward the end I was feeling a little bit I hate that we use the term bored, but not as challenged as I wanted to be. I would say that. And uh, and so I knew I wanted the tailwheel because I think uh, just as a motorcycle is more challenging and more rewarding to drive than a car, I, I think a tailwheel is, is similar. And so I knew I wanted the tailwheel and I knew I loved uh, how Cessna's fly. And so that really narrows it down. Um, and uh, for a long time, I thought I'd be uh, wind up with a 120 or 140 little well, two seat. Tail drag your Cessna, Um, and then uh, the more I looked into it, and the more I I, I did fly a 140 a little bit, um, I I decided, man, it's probably worth saving for another year or so and getting a 170, the the, the four seat version. Um, And then that, and then through through an Instagram connection, I learned of one that uh, was uh, not on the market in Seattle. That that somebody, this this guy decided, okay. He's owned it for 41 years. He's not going to be flying anymore, and it's time to sell it. And so um, Chelsea, the, this Instagram uh, follower who's since become a, a bit of a friend, um, though I haven't met her in person, she she, she told me about this, this airplane, and um, I wound up flying out there and, and seeing it and ended up uh, buying it months later. Um, I, uh, I couldn't get time off work, so my uh, buddy Marty and other buddy Jared uh, flew it from Seattle to Wisconsin for me. Um, and then my second checkout lesson in the airplane would have been, I think, August I want to say of last year. Um, uh, I made the mistake of doing, uh, an interrupted pre-flight and coming back out and doing an abbreviated pre-flight and not realizing that the custom made cowl plugs, um, which you can't see from the cockpit uh I realized I, I i I ended up not taking them out before the flight, and so we take off and uh maybe ten minutes on the flight, we realized wow, the cylinder head temperature's really high, is that normal? It's like no it's not so uh we landed right away at the grass strip um and uh and then, after we the landing, I was taxiing back, and then the cow plug came dislodged and it kind of popped up into view, so I was like crap so I just ruined my engine and so uh let the engine cool down, did a run up. Everything was fine. Flew back. It was fine. Even the next day, uh, it flew beautifully. It did a full second lesson. But then I thought, you know, just to be safe, I'm going to have it borescoped and check it out. And, uh, and then after borescoping it, we did find uh, three of the cylinders had little cracks right near the, the valve seats. And, um, yeah, I could have replaced just the three cylinders. But I thought, let's just be safe. And I'll replace all six cylinders. Basically do a top overhaul on the engine. Uh, so between finding the parts and getting maintenance scheduled and getting that all done, that was months of a process. And then after it was done, well, here I am with a new airplane that now has a freshly overhauled engine. Uh, well, now it needs to fly about 25 hours um, without doing takeoffs and landings or with minimizing takeoffs and landings. Because break-in process, you just want to be flying in cruise flight all the time, high power settings. Uh, pattern work is not cool. So now, okay, I need to be checked out in the airplane, but I can't do pattern work. Well, that's inconvenient. So I had to depend on some good friends locally, uh, Jim, who's uh, JS-170B. Um, he's a 170 owner nearby here. And then uh, Luke Leshendro um, is another. And they were kind enough to come and, and fly as PIC um, and to just fly around and then build those 25 hours or so of... Uh, of cylinder break in hours until the engine was appropriately broken in where I could then finally continue my checkout. And so that was months in the process too. Um, And uh, just earlier this week was my very first solo flight in my own airplane where I finished my checkout and and flew it. So that was a big, uh, a big uh, milestone for me.
0: had that plane for so long. (laughs) I know
1: it's just been this whole ongoing process so uh so i uh, i'm taking it in for annual at the end of the week and uh it's the first annual so i'm embracing myself and then uh yeah i fully expect to be up at Ashcash camping under the wing in about a
0: month i love it you know it just goes to show though that like uh, airplane ownership isn't just going to fly get that burger and having fun there's a lot that comes to it and you have to make sure you're ready for, for spending what is now, I mean, I'm sure you spent way more than that plane was worth three years ago when you started Instagram, but uh, spending a good amount of money for the chance that you never know when some, the cylinders could crack engine could go out and then you got to put more money into it. Like it's not just, I'm going to go buy $150,000 182 and then go fly it for five years. Like, it's like, Oh, I got to maintain this bad boy. <laughs> you know, it's like,
1: well, owner, you can't, you can't, you can't just be a part-time, uh, uh, maintenance person. It's you have to you have to want to learn every aspect of every system on the airplane, and at a at a moment's notice, at any given time, someone could. You should be able to answer the question of like, okay, how many how are your mags right now, or, or how, what's the inter- how many more hours do you have on your engine overhaul? I mean, these are you have to be engaged, and you have to it has to be a main interest uh, to be an airplane owner.
0: Absolutely, and it's something that you. I feel like it's hard, especially just like making sure you're saving money for all that kind of stuff you know like you sometimes when you think uh, you have an airplane just go fly whenever you want but it's like no pay yourself for that airplane so you always have money in case something goes down with that or something goes wrong always make sure you're setting aside eighty dollars an hour forty dollars an hour make sure you're doing everything that you can to make sure you have the maintenance costs covered uh, especially when annuals come up
1: yeah and and then you always have to be studying and paying attention to it like it's like a part-time job in that respect
0: yeah absolutely which i'm sure you love that actually. <laughs> You're gonna be probably the expert on one seventies. <laughs> That's awesome. So do you anything that you've done in your career? So how your your path has moved on. Uh do you regret any decisions you made? Do you wish you just would have kept going flying and, and, and put your uncle in the <laughs> up for thirty grand? Or are you happy with how everything's played out and where you are in life?
1: Oh, I think every day about you know where I would be if I had continued on the professional flying path. And uh and you know, there are some days when I, I kind of wish I had I had kept going to see kind of where it would lead. But, uh, but you know, if the circumstances were the same and I was faced with the same uh, concerns, I, I don't know that I would make a different decision now uh, than I did then.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it's really funny how, how, you're going to face a bunch of adversity in your career whether you go flying uh, whether you're in sports or no matter what you're doing uh, you're going to face adversity and it's how you handle that and how you bounce back and just keep making the best decision you possibly can for you and your life and things work out you know maybe you won't be flying the 787 but you're going to be having more fun writing about aviation researching it and owning your own 170 so uh, it all works out in the end it just might be a little bit different than what you originally planned when you first started which is okay
1: yeah, and the the career goals I think are are often common among people. Like a lot, a lot of people have exactly the same career goals, but it's not a level playing field. Everyone has their own circumstances, and so it's about how you manage the balance between those two things. That, that's what really matters.
0: Absolutely, and you just got to be okay that well, one person's success doesn't mean that your life is is terrible. If your friend's Anthony Pence and he's a billionaire, doesn't mean that your life is inadequate. You know, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> And now it is time for the rapid-fire section. Today's rapid-fire section is sponsored by Sirius XM Aviation. With high-resolution coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always-available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and Tracks. Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out AOPA.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself. Uh, All right, I have a a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So this is just aviation themed questions and you come up with the first answer that comes to your head as fast as possible. Just boom, boom, boom. You ready? All right, let's do it. Favorite airplane ever made? Ah, geez. Uh,
1: Aside from my 170, the PCL M15 Belfagor, which is a Polish biplane crop duster powered by a jet engine.
0: All right, that sounds pretty cool. Favorite corporate jet?
1: Um, I like the Citation M2 because it's small and cool. And then I like Falcons.
0: Falcons are sweet. Favorite airliner?
1: Uh, Avro RJ. Ugly or uh, and, and, or uh, like Concorde. All
0: right. Ugliest airplane ever made.
1: Oh man. I, I don't want to say it because I have I, to. It's. I I reviewed it for an an article in Flying Magazine, and I met some really great owners that it's their pride and joy, and and I'll keep it private because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to trash talk their pride and joy.
0: Hey, man! Some people need to understand that they just love an ugly airplane. You know, like it's okay. You can love an ugly airplane if you want. (laughs) One day we'll get that out of you. (laughs) Maybe we'll see. What's something you wish you knew before you started this aviation journey?
1: Um, the importance of removing your cow plugs before a flight.
0: <laughs> yes. A very expensive mistake. Uh, something, you no, know, I just asked that who in the industry would you like to meet most?
1: Um, I think I'd just like to spend more time with the people I do know.
0: That's a good answer. I like that answer. No one has ever said that. It's awesome. I love that. What's your favorite overall thing about aviation?
1: Uh, I think it's, I love how it takes a lot of work to accomplish the ability to enjoy it. And then it takes a lot of a different kind of work to to, to be able to fly to a cool remote destination. And um, it's really rewarding because of the work it takes to get there. And then when you get there, uh, whether it's a remote destination or wherever, and you encounter someone else who's able to do the same thing, um there's a there's a really strong connection there that that that, that brings us together and, and uh makes it a lot of fun. What's the
0: hardest flight you've ever flown?
1: Um and aside from that simulator flight where I landed the uh, crippled 737 at Meigs, um eh, my instrument check ride is pretty challenging. Yeah.
0: Instrument checkride sucks. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Especially going for your private. I just, I wasn't prepared. I thought I was, but it's like, you just don't know what you don't know until someone asks you and you're like, Oh shoot. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But Hey, uh, it's all right. I failed that checkride and here I am flying professionally. So it's all good. Uh, what's your favorite flight you've ever flown?
1: um, it would be the year that a friend and I were at Ashkash. We, we flew uh, a 172 um, to Ashkash from a flying club that we belonged to. He was a CFI and um, we were at Ashcash, We spent the week there and then randomly run into a third buddy who was, a, who at the time was an airline pilot. Um, and he needed to get to Chicago um, like for his flight the next day to go to work. And, uh, and he asked if we could drop him off. I'm like, Absolutely. So we, um, we, we the three of us depart Oshkosh, which th- that in and of itself is memorable. And then uh, this was just before Meigs Field was closed. And so we, uh, I got to land at Meigs Field, which was amazing because you're on final below the level of skyscrapers around you. Um, and then we shut down on the ramp and I remember walking across the ramp. And it was eerie. I like looked around, and it felt like I was inside of Microsoft Flight Simulator. And then um, almost got stranded there because we didn't realize the time the airport closes at a certain time. So we had to like run back out like it was some World War II, um, you know, scramble. And then um, flew a night flight then from uh, Meeks Field back to Ann Arbor. And uh, so it was memorable because of Oshkosh and it was memorable because of Meeks, and then um, that friend I was flying with unexpectedly passed away just a couple of years after that. So, uh, memorable for flying with him as well.
0: Yeah. And there goes your whole point where you said, uh, spend time with the people, you know, right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely a pretty cool flight I would say. And especially now with everything that has happened. Yeah. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at?
1: Uh, I'd probably stick with Meeks field. It was amazing. Least favorite airport. Oh man.
0: I don't know if this officially is least favorite, but uh, I recently
1: flew with a buddy who owns a plane in Michigan. and He's got a hangar at this airport that it's not a bad airport, but it's in like a like terrain wise. It's in a small bowl in the terrain. So every runway you take off of, there's, there's like a rising terrain in every direction. And it's the most uncomfortable feeling to me when we, when we depart out of there it's Like I feel like it should be the opposite. So that one, <laughs> You're like, it's not uh, easier, but it bothered
0: me. And it's funny that you say that, in Michigan people don't really think of train over in Michigan. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, I use the term loosely, but yeah, there's there's, <laughs> With there's the, there's, the there's
0: two hills. The <laughs> you guys got Boyne Mountain, right? I've been there before. I've flown to their private little airport or public airport that's right on right by the mountain.
1: Yeah, I've gone skiing in Michigan on former landfills. Yeah, well. right. You know, they're
0: fun. They're cool. <laughs> Uh, would you rather fly over mountains, beach, city, oceans, skyline? What's your favorite kind of topography, geography to fly over?
1: Mountains, beach, city. Um, I would say the number one choice would be flying over beaches around the
0: Great Lakes. All right,
1: because uh, just they're so beautiful, salt-free, shark-free. That's <laughs>
0: free. That's big. Shark-free is big. Yes. IFR or VFR? Would you rather go fly? I'll VFR favorite airport food so let's say you're flying to a new airport for the first time and you are heading out to go get some food what are you going for well if i'm heading
1: to an airport and uh, there's going to be food involved hopefully it's going to be out in the middle of nowhere and hopefully it's food i'm preparing and so that means it's probably going to be one of those freeze-dried meals and i had one a while back i think it was made by peak and uh it's one of these meals you you tear open and you pour boiling water in, you let it sit and then it's you eat it. And man, it was like this coconut curry chicken stuff. It was amazing. And, uh, and then the mountain house makes a really good breakfast to steal it too. So those would be my favorite meals.
0: I love it. That's cool. Uh, what's your favorite aviation accessory? So like when you go fly, uh, it could be sunglasses, a Garmin watch, a headset. Like what's your like go-to you have to have on you at all times?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is some, something I notice when I'm in an airplane that doesn't have it. And uh, it's rosen visors, the, the sun visors that the, they're translucent. so you can and they're big. so you can drop them down in front of your field of vision, block the sun, and still see through it and see stuff around you. And it's like when you use them, it's like, okay, they're you know cool, they're, they're nice. but then when you get into an airplane that doesn't have them at all, it's like the worst experience ever, and you're, when the sun is low, it's just like you just you, you miss your the other airplanes so bad.
0: Yeah, I hate like, the latitude visors that they have in there; they're not great. So uh, I, we need uh, an upgrade ASAP. <laughs> so Textron if I you're listening, please. I have a connection
1: that, uh, at text
0: I'll mention yeah. it to him. It's awful. It's like I'm just staring into the sun. They don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. Airbus or Boeing? Um. If,
1: if, if <laughs> I'm reminded of a, something a friend of mine said, he, he flew both for the airlines and um, he, he talked at length about how rewarding or how, how easy it is to fly the Airbus in day-to-day airline operations and how it's, uh, it takes virtually no physical effort and it's very ergonomic and very comfortable. And, um, and, and he praised the Airbus left and right. And he closed this, uh, this little message, by saying, sorry, good people of Boeing, if I ever have the urge to bomb Bremen or Wilhelmshaven, Boeing would be my first stop shopping. But for taking people to, to random towns in the US, I like the Airbus.
0: I like it. I like it. I think it's a good answer. Long trips or short trips, you are in Scruffy, your 170, and you fly as many short trips, takeoff and landings as you possibly can, or at the longest possible flight in that airplane.
1: Um, short trips, but far away from home.
0: All right, so you got to fly long ways to get to those short trips.
1: No, no, I don't like. I don't want the. I just want the the the, the short flights, far like in Alaska or oh, got it, you know, got northern got Oregon coast. So
0: or, someone else flies uh, scruffy the the twelve hours to get there. Then I mean, you have to there. It
1: just won't be my favorite part. My favorite <laughs> part will be the short flights far away from home.
0: Piper or Cessna, if you had to choose one based on just like history of a company type of airplanes, which one are you choosing?
1: I, they, I choose Cessna based on everything.
0: I like it. CRJ or ERJ, if you had to choose to go fly on as a passenger.
1: Oh, I have a personal vendetta against the CRJ200 from the,
0: <laughs>
1: the neck injuries they've given me, just trying to look out the window in the passenger cabin. So absolutely ERJ all That's the way. That's
0: so funny. What's your favorite airline you ever flown on or one that you always try to fly on?
1: I always try to fly on Delta. I'm I'm always well with very few exceptions i, I am uh, come away impressed by delta
0: i like it jason thanks so much for coming on the podcast man it's been a long time coming we've talked about this uh literally for years um i moved go. away and we made it work <laughs> so there we go oh. <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate well, that thanks man having
1: me. it was a great uh, chance to talk to you and yeah. uh, i wish you the best
0: thanks i appreciate it i hope you have a good day uh and uh, yeah it's been fun we'll see you at ash we'll see you Aviation, that's a wrap of the Pilot the Pilot episode number 227. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot to Pilot, where if you hear our, our kid in the background, he is the one that's making the noise, and you'll see tons of photos of Emmett. But uh, check out Pilot's Coffee, and I hope everyone's having a great day. And as always, happy flying.